Awesome. Well, thank you all so much. It is such a pleasure to be here tonight. Um, I've got to tell you, women's ministry just has a special place in my heart. Um, I've been coming to IBC for about five years, and um, women's ministry was one of the first things that I got involved in. Um, my table has changed over the years. Oh, thank you. Test, test. Are we good? If that works for you. Okay. okay. We're going to roll with it. <laughs> um, but yeah, my table has changed over the years, but the thing that has stayed the same is just how encouraged I feel when I leave this room every week. Um, just being here with you all in this space um, and getting to study God's word together is such a blessing in my life. So um, just thank you for that. Before we get started, I want to open with um, a quick word of prayer. So if you'll pray with me. God, thank you so much for bringing us here. God, I pray that whatever we bring into this room tonight, um, Lord, whatever kind of day we've had, Father, that we'd be able to set those things aside and focus on you. Lord, that we would hear your voice clearly, that we would hear what you'd want to say to us tonight, um, and that, Lord, it would inform the way that we live. God, I thank you for the privilege that it is to gather together and study your word. I know that's not every um, person's experience, and so, Lord, I thank you so much for this space and this community where we get to do that together. Lord, I pray that you would bless every woman that is here. I pray that you would bless her for her persistence and her curiosity. And, Lord, I pray that we would know you more today than we knew you yesterday. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So there are many personality quizzes in the world from Myers-Briggs to BuzzFeed quizzes and the Harry Potter sorting test. Um, but one that we talk a lot around here about is the Enneagram. Um, now, I had never heard of the Enneagram before I started coming to IBC. So for those of you who are in the dark like I was, um, it's a system that outlines nine different personality types. Now, it's not a new invention, but the thing that I find interesting and particularly helpful about the Enneagram is that it focuses on motivation rather than behavior. So I'm an Enneagram 1, um, which is the reformer. And the reformer is described as rational, idealistic, they're principled, purposeful, self-controlled, and perfectionistic. Um, and if you don't believe me, I went to Enneagram's website to grab this verbatim because it had to be perfect and exact. So if you needed any evidence, there it is. Um, I'm deeply motivated by rules and a desire for things to be perfect. So not surprisingly, my favorite subjects in school were math and science and grammar because at the end of the day, grammar is just math for language. I value rules, and I might even be tempted to go as far as to say that I love them. But even as a passionate rule enthusiast, um, when I opened the study for this week and saw that our passage was God giving the Israelites the Ten Commandments, my initial reaction was dread. I thought, this is how we believe that God loves us no matter what? By reading rules? Now I know that not everybody is a rules person like I am, but I'm guessing I'm not the only person that has seen the Ten Commandments as nothing more than a list of rules that are impossible to keep. I started following Jesus in middle school, and so I didn't really grow up in the church, but even then, I had heard the Ten Commandments. I feel like it has to be up there in at least the top five well-known passages of scripture, both inside and outside the church, and in the U.S., most of us learn the Ten Commandments from a young age. But in my experience, they were presented without any context, 
just dry text that feels more like the terms and agreements that everybody acknowledges but doesn't really read or think about. We scroll through them as fast as possible, click accept, and move on with life, right? But I think this passage has so much more to offer us. God wants us to know him, and in this passage, he reveals his heart for us through his commandments. When we stop and really look at the commandments, we get a clear picture of who God is and what is important to him, our relationship with him and our relationship with others. By living out his commandments, we become more like him, bringing him glory and bringing others to know him too. So my invitation tonight is to grab your camping gear and pitch a tent with me at the foot of Mount Sinai. We'll join Moses and the Israelites in Exodus 20, where God himself gives them the Ten Commandments. We'll look at the first four and see what God tells us about himself and, what, and why that matters to us and those around us. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Exodus 20. Um, it's also printed out in page 39 of the study, and I think it's also going to be um, on the screen. So lots of options to follow along. So beginning in Exodus um, 20, verse 1, it says, And God spoke all these words. Pause. Our God is a God who speaks. Up to this point, he has spoken to the people through Moses, but this time, Moses is with the people as God speaks to all of them together. Now, I'm sure that God could have sent the Bronze Age equivalent of an email, but he comes in thunder and lightning and fire and smoke and he himself speaks to the people. This moment is unique, and we should pay attention. So picking up in verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now, Kat makes this point in the study, but in case you missed it, I want you to see this. God reminds them of who he is and what he has done before he gives them any instructions. God rescues them from slavery in Egypt before he gives them any laws. Grace then laws. So picking up in verse 3, we get the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before or besides me. You shall not make an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who keep who love me and keep my commandments. God tells us here that he is a jealous God. Now this isn't human jealousy that's characterized by hostility, bitterness, or resentment. This is God making it clear that he wants all of us, and he won't settle for sharing us with other gods. Now most of us probably aren't tempted to worship images of other gods, um, like the Israelites in the bronze calf, but there are things in our lives that we can worship instead of God. Things like money, politics, status, a relationship, a job, our own plans for life. These things aren't bad in and of themselves, but, if, but they are not worthy of our worship. Only God is worthy. He is worthy because of who he is, and these verses show us that one, he is just. It says, punishing the sins of the father to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And he is abounding in love showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And he is the same God today, yesterday, and tomorrow. He doesn't get tired, and his love for us never diminishes. 
Could we say the same thing about anything or anyone that we would put in God's place? Is there anything that we could give our hearts to that would love us the way that he does? Continuing on, um, commandment number three. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, we're reading from the NIV, but most of you are probably familiar with the ESV translation, which says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. God is holy, and therefore his name is holy. And I acknowledge that holy is a church word that we say a lot without really defining what it means. And the shortest definition of holy that I've ever heard is simply set apart. This points to the fact that God is perfect, pure, and distinct in a way that is totally separate from anyone else. There is literally no one like our God. In his book, Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says, Holy is the way God is. To be holy, he does not conform to a standard. He is that standard. He is absolutely holy with an infinite, incomprehensible fullness of purity that is incapable of being other than it is. This is the God we represent when we take his name. I think we've probably all witnessed a person or a cause that takes God's name but doesn't reflect God's character. It can be incredibly hurtful and damaging. And on the flip side, I hope you've known somebody that bears his name well because it is incredibly life-giving to be loved by someone who represents God well. But I want to take a moment and pause and say, if this hasn't been your experience, I am so sorry. Please, please know that despite anything that anybody has said or anybody has done, the God of the universe loves you more than you can possibly imagine, and he is everything he says he is. We honor God. um, When we honor God by loving others his way, it blesses the people around us. They get a glimpse of who he is, he gets the glory, and others are invited to draw close to him. So continuing on with commandment number four, it says, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, we could spend an entire semester studying the Sabbath, but I want to highlight something here. Verse 10 says, the Sabbath day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. God reminds the people that he is the creator, and as such, he is also our sustainer. By not working one day a week, we demonstrate trust in him, that what he has provided is sufficient without us having to provide for ourselves. We are called to work diligently for him six days a week and then worship him by enjoying all that he has given us on day seven. And this worship and joy-filled rest isn't just for us. It's for the good of everyone and everything around us. So here's an example of what that looks like in my life. Um, As Amy mentioned, I work in technology and most days I work from home. And so my coworkers know that I'm around because my little blue, or my little status bubble in Teams or Slack is green. And part of my job is to review and approve pieces of work as it's being done. Now, I love my job, I love my team, and I love the people that we serve, but I could easily make an idol out of work. 
And for a while, I felt obligated uh, to be online just in case someone needed something for me. And before I knew it, if I wasn't asleep, I was online. The thing I realized, though, is that by my staying online, it was encouraging others to stay online too, and it just perpetuated a cycle. But if I set healthy boundaries for my work and intentionally go offline at the end of the day, it gives others permission to do that too. God includes every class of people in his commandment to rest. The Sabbath is not just meant to bless us and bless God, but it's also meant to bless those around us as well. So I hope you're starting to see how in the first four commandments alone, we learn so much about who God is. He is a God who rescues. He is a jealous God. He is a holy God. He is our creator and our sustainer. This passage is so rich in theology, and it invites us into an abundant life with him, a life where we worship him and him alone, a life that points to him and represents him well in the world, a life where we intentionally pause once a week to worship him and enjoy his creation. Now, we won't read through the other six commandments tonight, but they turn the focus to how we love others in light of how we love God. We're told, not to, or we're told to honor our parents, but not to murder, commit adultery, steal, give false accounts or false testimony about events that we witness, not to covet anything, anything that belongs to someone else. And just like the first four, the last six commandments require us to trust God and rely on him to love his way. To trust and rely on him in the way that we love our parents, we love our spouse, we love our neighbors. And we will never do this perfectly. But when we love people the way God intended, it increases their good in God's glory. So what is one step you can take this week to love God and others based on these commandments? What is one step? Maybe it's naming the idols that fight for your attention and affection over God and confessing those things to God and a closer friend. Maybe it's finding intentional time to stop work, to worship God, and enjoy what he has given you. Or maybe it's resting in the fact that God rescues us before he ever calls us to obedience. He wants our hearts. You see, we aren't robots for a reason. He doesn't just want our obedience. He wants our hearts as well. But once we understand how great God's love is for us and the truth that we have been rescued, our only natural response is obedience. So I mentioned earlier that my initial reaction to the Ten Commandments was dread. I think that's because I know I don't measure up to the standard that's set here. And even if I did, it seems like Jesus raises the bar when we get to the New Testament. He elaborates on the commandments by showing us the spirit behind the commandments. For example, he says, anyone who is even angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder, and anyone who looks at a person lustfully is guilty of adultery. That already high bar seems to get even higher. But let me tell you, friends, there is good news. Jesus measures up. He says, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And what he says, he does. He lives a perfect life and yet dies the death that we deserve so that his righteousness would become our righteousness. As one commentator puts it, the law drives us to Jesus for forgiveness and a new heart and the spirit that empowers for obedience. While in this life we cannot keep the law perfectly and are always in need of grace, we are never crushed by the law because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
I'm going to read that one more time because it's so important. While in this life we cannot keep the law perfectly and are always in need of grace, we are never crushed by the law because there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So as we close, I want to take a moment just to imagine what life would look like if we loved God and loved our neighbors this way, where we give generously to one another because we are content with what we have, where there is true justice when someone is wronged, where marriages and families flourish, where there, um, back in Exodus 19.5, God tells the people that if they obey fully and keep the covenant, they will be a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. And the whole idea was not just for them to enjoy the blessings of being in relationship with God, but to share those blessings with other nations, that the people outside of Israel would be blessed by their obedience. I shared earlier that I came to know Jesus when I was in middle school, and a big part of my story is a family that lived in our neighborhood. Their daughter was in my class, and we became best friends. She invited me to church and Bible study and youth group and Bible study on a Friday with pizza. I mean, who can say no to that? I started spending afternoons at their house, and I often stayed for dinner. And as I spent more time with them, I couldn't help but notice the way they loved me and the way they loved each other. It was just different from anything that I had ever experienced. Do you know what I mean? A love that just is beyond explanation? That's what I felt when I was around them. And the more I learned about Jesus and understood who he was, I understood that they loved God and people the way he commanded. They aren't perfect, but they pointed me to God's love, and it changed my life. I am here today because of the love and the kindness they showed me as a sixth grader. In the commentary I quoted earlier, the author says, God poured himself into his law. This means that the Ten Commandments are so much more than instructions for good living or a list of rules to check off. They reveal God's good heart for us and for the people around us. Now, I'm still wrestling with what it looks like to live obediently to the commandments while also remembering God's grace and love when I fall short. But I doubt I will ever read the commandments the same way again. Now that I've seen God's heart revealed here, I can't unsee it. And so I hope that you've caught a glimpse of God tonight and that it fuels you to love him and love others. Let us pray. God, thank you so much for the way that you love us. Thank you for your commandments and what they show us about who you are, Lord. You could have stayed silent, but Lord, you spoke to the people and you told them exactly what you expect but only after rescuing them from Egypt. And God, I thank you so much for the love and the grace that we have in, in Jesus. Um, for just the fact that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That is good news every single day. And so, Lord, I pray that we would love you and love others while remembering this grace, uh, but ultimately to give you the glory and show others who you are. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.